0: I want to uh, welcome you if you're visiting Redeemer today. I've met some who are here for the first time. I've met many in the last several weeks who uh, have been visiting Redeemer. We're glad that you're here. Everybody here that's been coming knows we're looking at the book of Mark. And the reason we're looking at Mark is we're studying the life of Christ. We're looking at both his life and his deeds, his work on our behalf. But all of history revolves around Jesus Christ and, and where we are uh, with him. Now today we come to an interesting passage because Christ is not, as it were, the central figure. It's the only passage in Mark where you do not see Christ prominently displayed, but what we see here is a, is a, a story of, of tragedy. John the Baptist is beheaded, but that's not the tragedy because his death was glorious. He was a martyr for the gospel, faithful to the end. But the tragedy is what we see in how people respond to the gospel of Christ. And how especially Herod responded to John the Baptist. And we're going to see a conscience that becomes seared. A man who's curious about the things that John is teaching even though John is preaching against him. And yet a moment of decision that sends him down the hole so that within several months or a year later... He meets Christ face to face and mocks him. Very, very amazing passage. So if you would, I would like for you to turn there. I'm going to start with verse 12 to get us a context. So they went out, the disciples, and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick. And he healed them. And King Herod heard of it. For Jesus' name had been become known, and some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he's Elijah, and others said he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John whom I beheaded has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent "...and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted him put to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man." He kept him safe, and when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests, and the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask, I will give to you up to half of my kingdom. And he went out and said, and she went out and said to her mother, For what shall I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter and the king was exceedingly sorry but because of his oath and his guest he did not want to break his word to her and immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head and he went and he beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother And when the disciples heard of it, they came and they took his body and they laid it in the tomb. This is God's word. Let's pray to God. Father, I pray for your mercies upon us today. We see a man who heard much truth. And for reasons that we will see along with the others who are in our text. hardened his heart, and it was seared, and he was no longer able to repent. So, Lord, we ask that you would help each of us believe that what we just read is the Word of God, and it is worthy of our attention. But Lord, we need not only your word, but we need your Holy Spirit to illumine us, to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. So Lord, we pray for your mercies today. And we ask it in your name. Amen. Now you children probably know the book, Where's Waldo? And if you're a parent, you probably know the book, Where's Waldo? It's not one you read. It's one you look at it and you try to find Waldo, right? Y'all know that story. And if you don't know about uh, Waldo, I'm sorry, but let me explain about Waldo. Uh, <clears throat> Waldo is this guy with, a, I think it was a red and white striped hat. And I think he had a scarf or something, uh, uh, pointed nose, pointed glasses. And, and what you would do, if you're not familiar with the story, is, uh, or the books you try to find Waldo and the masses of people, whether it's at a subway station or, or a family reunion or a football game. And I can remember when I first would get the books, I was trying to make sure I saw Waldo before my kids did. It's probably why they're struggling today. But <laughs> but what I want us to look at today is ourselves in this text. We don't have masses here, but there, there are many people in our text. And what I'd like for you to do is, we go through this text, I would like to see uh, you, not looking uh, for Waldo, but for, to see if you can find yourself in this text. And if you're like getting ready to fall asleep on me or you're getting ready to kind of you know, flag out on me, you really, you really need to see if you can find yourself in this text. Well, let me give you the context of what's going on here. Jesus had just sent out his 12 disciples. Uh, Last week, we looked at how Jesus himself was rejected by his own people in in Nazareth, right? They rejected the message. They rejected the gospel. And so in the midst of that opposition, his own family and and, uh, people in the village rejecting uh, him, he sends out the disciples along with Judas Iscariot. And these disciples preach the kingdom. And not only do they preach, they're also able, in the name of Christ, perform miracles. People were being healed. And so now the gospel of the kingdom of God is spreading like wildfire. And so now everybody's hearing about who Jesus Christ is. And so everybody has their opinions about who he is, right? Who is this man? Of course, later we'll see in Mark chapter 8, Jesus is going to ask that question to his disciples. Who do men say that I am? But if you'll notice here in verse 14, it says, well, some say that he's John the Baptist, he's been raised from the dead. And that's why he's able to do miraculous powers, do things that are amazing. But others said that he's Elijah. And others said uh, that he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. So there's all these ideas about who Jesus Christ is, just like today. But what's interesting in our text is we find out that Herod has thoughts about that, doesn't he? And he falls to the side of Elijah being raised from the dead. In fact, if you'll notice, if you'll look at verse 16, it says this, but when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised so why is Herod weighing in on this well if you notice he's very personal about it doesn't he he says John him I beheaded John the Baptist is haunting him because his conscience is bothered for what he has done Now, at this point, what we have is a flashback, right? He starts talking about how all this, our text tells us how all this thinking began with Herod. But what I want us to see, and as I looked at this text, it's really a fascinating text. It's a very tragic text. But as I looked at this, I saw not only how Herod responded, but all the other characters. They're in this text. And as we look at these characters, I I would like for you and myself as I'm looking at at this text, which ones we identify with. Now here are the characters that are here. And so here are gonna be my points. We're gonna look at the party participants. Those who are there at at his birthday party. And then we're gonna look at the daughter of Herodias. Herodias. Some of you young ladies would be very interested in this. And then we're going to look at Herodias, the wife of Herod. And then I want us to look at Herod, and then I want us to look at John the Baptist. And you're going, wow, five minutes each point. Well, let's, let's begin then the first I want us to see that we see in our text is the party participants. That's what he says in verse 21 who was there at his birthday party at his banquet. It says on Herod's birthday he gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. So who's at the party? Nobles. Nobles. Not just military people, but military commanders. And it also tells us the leading men of Galilee. Now before I look at this a little bit closer, uh, I think it's important to, to understand a little bit about Herod. Because, and why he invited these people to the park. Uh, Herod Antipas was the son of Herod the Great, And if you know anything about Herod the Great, he was the one, his father, who was concerned about the Messiah in Bethlehem and had all the two-year-old children and under the boys uh, executed. When he dies, uh, he divides his kingdom that was given him by Rome into four parts. And here we have Herod... Antipas, uh, who had a third of a kingdom or a fourth of a kingdom. And, uh, and if you read about Herod and I don't have time to go over a lot about Herod but he was a very wicked man as we see and John the Baptist is calling him out. And because uh, he did not have the security that probably he he would like to have had as the king, as the ruler, he's always paying politics to find that security. And so he invites people to his party who can do him well. Who can shore up, as it were, uh, his kingdom. And so the people that he has there at the party are the people who want to be there, who are the end. And so I started thinking about the participants, those uh, who were there. All the leaders, those who kind of made it, those who made the inner circle. And maybe they had heard of Jesus Christ. Maybe they had an opinion about him. But that didn't really matter. John the Baptist came, John the Baptist is gone. Leaders come, religious leaders come, rabbis come, rabbis go, Jesus comes. Jesus goes but they were real men who had real names who weren't that interested in all that. What they were interested in was being on the inside, right? That they've arrived. And I tell you, when that becomes important to you, you do strange things. If that's really what's important to you. The kingdoms of this world. Tell you what it made me do when I was a younger man, I'd decided I wanted to be the uh, president of my school. And uh, so I got up in front of several hundred people, students, to give a speech. Terrifying. In fact, uh, I will be honest with you today. I still have not gotten used to being in front of people, but the Lord called me to do it. So now you know that your pastor every Sunday has to trust the Lord. But so I, I got up uh, uh, to, to give a speech uh, and, and, uh, and then I won the election and I became the president. And uh, I didn't think that much about it, but it was nice not only being on the inside, right, but you're in the center of the inside. Until I had a teacher who after one of our uh, meetings that I was supposed to be leading, Miss Billy Addison, she rebuked me. And she said, what the students need from you is leadership. They need you to serve this school. And it seems what you're interested in is that you're the president of the school. And I thought to myself, absolutely. That I saw myself as the center of the world and everybody else was a prop in my play maybe you're like that now what's important to you is uh, you might be interested in Christ you might be come to church uh, you might read your Bible from time to time but in reality uh, you're more like the guys who are participating in the party whose desire is to be on the inside And that's what your life is about. Well, those are the partiers. But then let's look at the daughter of Herod. So here they're there. They're they're in. They're not concerned about Jesus or John the Baptist teaching. They don't care about that. They're in. They're at the party. They have the, the world by the tail. And so here they are at this party. There it is, birthday party. And so, there's a dance that takes place. And the person who is dancing is the daughter of Herodias, probably the niece of Herod. And when she danced... It wasn't the polka. It wasn't the Texas two step. Uh, It wasn't clogging. It wasn't ballet. And so I might be discreet. Uh, She was dancing a dance that incited the lust of those drunken men that were there. And the reason that it pleased Herod was because normally the, the women that they would have to dance and do the exotic dance were the prostitutes or the paid strippers. But here is royalty. Most commentators believe that she might have been 16 or 17 years old. And because she's young and because uh, she's not your typical, as it were, prostitute, the men were pleased. And so Herod, in his drunken stupor, makes this promise to this 16 or 17-year-old girl. He says, ask me whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And then in verse 23, he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give to you up to half of my kingdom. Now I want you to think about what she does. She doesn't say, cashier's check right now. Uh, Just write it out. Make it out to... What does she do? It says in verse 24, And she went out and said to her mother, what should I ask? I started thinking about this. What should she ask? She should ask for half the kingdom. The promise was not made to her mother. The promise was made to her. And as I started thinking about this, started thinking about what this girl wanted and maybe she didn't want half a kingdom maybe she's a girl who grew up in a chaotic family and she's more concerned about being loved more concerned about being accepted pleasing Herod now she's here to please her mother and she says mom what do you want me to do As I started thinking about this, I started thinking about being campus minister, how long I was a campus minister. I thought about how many girls over the years that I had ministered to in my 27 years of ministry. And how many young ladies grow up in homes where they're not loved. Looking for affection. Looking for approval. They want that more than houses the idea of romance. But sadly to say, what I've discovered is that many of these young ladies, and I want to say this to you younger women, because what matters to you is to be loved and to be accepted, you give yourself uh, to, to receive that love. Only to discover in your disappointment that you find yourself again rejected. Now I started to think about the young men. A lot of young men that I know, uh, many who are driven uh, over the years doing college is driven for the approval of their father. That, that's the most important. They're doing all these things. They're not doing exactly what God calls them to do. To be a, Maybe God calls you to be an English teacher. Maybe God has given you gifts in the area of arts or whatever it may be. But because you want to please your father, and your father wants you to be the accountant, or he wants you to be the, the one who takes over his business, your whole life is driven for the approval. And so you never really live your life. Now, one of the ways I know I had to deal with this in my own life when I decided to be a minister. Um, I have a great relationship with my father, he's passed on. But he wanted somebody to take over his company. And so I remember telling him, I remember telling my father in law, who's a physician, a wonderful guy, and we have a great relationship now. But here I'm 27 years old. And in their mind, I know what they're thinking is You mean you're going to give up your life to be a preacher? to give up the stability of having a, 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 a nice job, a desk job or whatever, so, so that you... God knows what's going to happen. What, what is the future that's there? And what got me through this, young men, is you're trying to figure out what your calling is, and you young ladies, as you're trying to figure out what your calling is, is that God had revealed to me through the gospel of Jesus Christ that he is my father. And I know my father loved me. I know my father and all loves me. But their love is not unconditional. Their love was never in such a way that they sent their only son to be crucified on my behalf. And so we learn from her that uh, maybe you're like that. I mean, maybe you're trying to find love in all the wrong places, but, the, the, but the, to find love is in what John the Baptist understood. It's in the personal work of Christ. It's in a relationship with God. And then we come to Herodias, right? The mother. And then I started thinking about Herodias. In a way, she is at least somewhat noble in her commitments, Verse 17 says this. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias. So in other words, Herod throws John the Baptist in prison to keep her happy. But because she feared, he feared John, uh, she was constant, he, he would not execute. He would not execute John the Baptist. And that was her goal. And of course then in verse 21, knowing Herod's weakness and knowing there's going to be a party, she saw that that was her opportunity and so she connives and ultimately gets the head of John the Baptist. Now, some of you might go, well, I can't really identify with that. But let me tell you what motivated her it was not relationships, it wasn't money, Uh, it wasn't to be accepted. She is the epitome of a person who is absolutely at the center of their world, and all that matters is what they want. Woody Allen one time was asked about his relationship with his stepdaughter. Uh, well, it was his adopted daughter. Maybe you know about this, but but his comment was this: "A heart wants what a heart wants. I mean, I, what I want, I want. That's what I wanted." And so she is the epitome of someone who has given over to their own narcissism. Concerned about herself, not concerned about anyone else. And no one like John the Baptist was going to tell her that she could not be committed to her own happiness. And so what she wanted uh, was revenge. She was not a people pleaser. She wanted revenge because this this one thing is keeping me from living the life that I want to live. Now, if you know anything about Ahn Rand, she would have been very proud of Herodes. Uh, She was the one who was the philosopher that wrote Atlas Shrugged. She had a philosophy called Objectivism, which uh, was about rational ethics and in a way you you create your own ethic. And uh, she gives an illustration uh, about the noble person. She talks about three kinds of people walking down the road. Two are noble, one's ignoble. And one uh, when, when man is walking down the, the street, and uh, across the street here, he, he, he sees a, a woman, an elderly woman, being robbed. And he immediately springs into action and uh, rescues the woman at his own peril. She would say he's noble. And then the next person's walking uh, down the street. He sees the woman being attacked and she he does not hesitate. He moves on. And she says he's noble. Because he's made decisions. And the person she says is ignoble or not noble is the person who looks across the street sees what's happening to the lady and begins to hesitate. What she is saying is, the person who decides to do what they want to do is the person who's to be admired, the person who is to be respected, and that's Herodias. Let me put it another way, and maybe some of you are like this. I mean, this is the time for you trying to ask, "No, which one am I? Am I seeking love, or am I just seeking to be in the in crowd? Am I seeking absolutely what I want? It's about me." Well, I was listening on the radio not long ago uh, this weird show called, called After Dark or something I, I was riding down the road and they were interviewing a vampire and I thought wow this is cool this will keep me awake and so I'm listening uh, to <clears throat> I'm listening to this vampire and he said oh yeah you know we, we, uh, we have vampire meetings all over the country And, and of course, course, the question came up with, like, do you suck blood out of people? He said, oh, no, 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 no. He said, that's just kind of a ceremony. We'll have a little blood there and sprinkle it around. He said, we suck the life out of people. And I thought, this is what our text is about. This is what she's like. That some of you who are here today, that you become so narcissistic, that it's about your own happiness that you're sucking the life out of everybody, but it doesn't matter. Well, we need to come to Herod. And what we see in Herod, I think, is the most tragic figure of all. Because what we're going to see in Herod is a man who, when he puts John the Baptist in prison, uh, probably somewhat agrees with what he's saying. But what's amazing uh, is that John the Baptist, I mean, uh, Herod would have John the Baptist, who's calling him out, come out and preach to him. And, And so our text tells us that Herod, in the process of listening to John the Baptist, is puzzled, but the things that he said pleased him. It seems as though Herod is at a a point where he's trying to pull maybe away from his wife. Maybe he's starting to understand the implications of what he's done. Maybe he's on the verge of repentance. Maybe he's getting ready to make that that commitment. But the word here, puzzled, literally means uh, someone who's getting ready to hit a fork in the road and they're having a hard time making up their mind. But the fork is coming. And so... Here's where he goes down the hole. It's when his pride gets in the way. And um, he makes this vow. And when that vow takes place, and he's more convi- committed to his respectability before men and being a people pleaser than he is in knowing the living God, is when everything shuts down for him. And why does it shut down? Because he begins to harden himself against the truth that was so clear. Somebody has said this about a conscience that begins to be seared. When it starts getting seared off, you can't get to it. He says, What we see in these verses is a picture of a person who can sin against their own conscience to the point that they are capable of anything. It is possible to ignore the warnings of your heart, your soul, your mind, until those warnings cease to be heard. It is possible to be a deaden- to, to so deaden the conscience that it is there is no it no longer stands as a barrier between the individual and any sin that they choose to commit. In other words, at his moment of opportunity to repent of his sins, he had that option. The words that John the Baptist said were sweet. They were good to him. And yet he like many who are ever hearing but never coming to a knowledge of the truth begin to make decisions to move away from that truth. Now let me tell you how hardened he got. He got so hardened that within a short period he would see Jesus Christ himself the night before his crucifixion. And when he saw Jesus Christ, unlike John, with John the Baptist where he wanted to hear what he had to say, he mocks Jesus. That's how far he went. Now before I come to John the Baptist and close, I want to say this, and I think this is what our text is teaching. I think this is why Mark is trying to tell us this. Throughout the book of Mark, Mark is trying to tell us who Jesus Christ is. And he's saying that you have to make a decision about who he is. You have to either respond in faith or live your own life. And to put your faith in other people, to put your faith in all these things that are fulfilling to you, the way we say, the way people went about it in our text. But I think there is this attitude sometimes that when I'm ready to kind of, uh, kind of get on with the plan, I'll get on with the plan. But in the meantime, I'm going to continue to love my life as I will. And I believe what Mark is trying to say to us is that there is a moment of decision. And we cannot dilly-dally with it. What if that were already the case for you? That you have so sinned against the preaching of the gospel whether it's me or John or some other preacher that you're already in the process that your conscience is seared and there's no nerve endings for conviction any longer. Well, there is one more figure here. It's John the Baptist, right? And what we learn about John the Baptist that makes him different from everyone else is this. He had his doubts, would you say? You don't see it here in our text, but he's in prison. John the Baptist had this idea that he would maybe reign with Christ. He didn't understand the death that was necessary in the resurrection. He had some idea of that. But here John the Baptist is. He's in prison But his doubts don't lead to darkness. His doubts lead him to send messengers to ask Jesus Christ in the midst of his doubts. Are you the one? And Jesus sends back the messengers to tell John the Baptist right before he's to have his head chopped off. I give sight to the blind and the lame walk. And he quotes Isaiah. And John is confirmed before his death that his reliance upon the word of God is true and certain. You know what made John the Baptist unique? And it's not that he tried hard. Uh, why he was able to, that, that he confused uh, Herod so, so much was that Herod's always trying to figure out what is his angle on this? I mean, here he is in prison and yet he continues to preach. He continues to call me out. I admire him. He was shaking the worldview of Herod who thought that everybody had their angle. But he did not have an angle. And the reason that he did not have an angle is because he was submitted to the very Savior who would call you to himself this morning. Who would give you life and give you hope. How can we become great, uh, what what you call the noble life, uh, men and women of faith who are not people pleasers, who are not self-centered, who are not narcissistic? Ultimately, it's love. And it's the love of Jesus Christ who gave himself for us, who lived by faith, and who lost the very face of God and went right straight into darkness. When he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we can have the face of God. So that we can know the Father who transforms us. So that we're not ruled by a spouse or money or religion or morality. But he reigns in our lives because he loves us and gave himself up for us. So we come to the Lord's table. Let me ask you this. Which one are you? Have you found yourself in here? I would encourage you and me and all of us to come to Christ, to rest in Him, to know His love so that we might be free to live the life that is not lived in fear but lived in mercy and grace. Let's pray together. Lord, we are grateful for Your Word. We thank You that You call us to consider who You are and to respond to you. So Lord, would you be gracious to us? Would you reveal yourself to us to know the love of Christ in such a way that we live the life that is the noble life, the life that is ruled only by you? So now, Lord, as we come and we have communion together, Lord, I pray that as we come, we come knowing that we are not rejected, but that we're accepted. But Lord, that we would come in faith and we would move from this place serving you who loved us and gave himself for us. And we ask it in your name. Amen.